And wow. Take your Bible this morning and turn with me, if you will, to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And today we're going to focus, as we've been doing our 100 days through the Bible, on one of the most interesting people in all the New Testament. Uh, His name is Stephen. His life really consists of just two chapters. Uh, We're introduced to him in Acts chapter 6. And by the end of Acts chapter 7, he has become a martyr for the faith. Uh, The word martyr means someone who is killed uh, because of his religious beliefs. And Stephen becomes the very first Christian martyr. He had preached a sermon Uh, to the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And in that sermon, he had told them uh, that God had sent the Messiah and his name was Jesus and that they had crucified him and they had had enough when they heard that and they stoned him to death. And so if you're reading with us this last Wednesday, this was the focus of our reading. And so today I want us to discover some very interesting things about Stephen's life that I think will help point us to Christ and inspire us to bring greater honor and glory to his name. So let's look at Acts chapter 7. I want to start by reading the end of the story. And in this section, beginning in verse 54, you're going to see something. We're going to encounter something uh, that happens rarely, if ever. And and you see if you can pick up on it. It's really only referenced once in the Bible, maybe three times. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But see if you see uh, this unusual occurrence as uh, Acts chapter 7 really wraps up this account. It says in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth at him, at Stephen. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. And they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so they began to throw rocks at him uh, with the intent of killing him. And they do. Verse 59 says, while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. That's the end of Stephen's earthly life. What a way to go out. And we're going to talk much about why this happened and what were the qualities in the life of Stephen that led to this. But did you notice something unusual? In the few verses that we read, did you notice something that you hardly ever read about any other place in scripture, something that happened that might have taken you by surprise? What took me by surprise is that Jesus Christ stood up. Did you notice that? You see it in two verses, verse 55, and then it's repeated in verse 56. Let's read that verse. He said, look, I see the heavens opened, so God gives Stephen a a window into heaven. He says, I see the heavens opened and the son of man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Now that might not seem so odd to you, 
But if you look at the entirety of the New Testament, that is a rare event. In fact, the Bible goes to great pains to say that between the ascension of Christ, Christ going into heaven after the resurrection, and Christ returning to the earth, that Christ is seated in heaven. Let me show you some of those verses. Matthew 25, verse 31 says, when the son of man comes in his glory, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Ephesians 1:20 says, he exercised this power in Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand of God. Colossians 3, 1, seek the things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1, 3, after making purification for sins, he set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And you find about a dozen or so verses. In fact, almost every single time the Bible refers to Jesus in heaven between uh, the ascension and the return, you find these many references to the fact that Jesus is sitting down. Now, I don't want to make more of this than we should. This is language used to uh, give sort of an earthly human perspective to Jesus so that we can understand something of who Jesus is and what he is doing. It is true that Jesus is not just seated, but Jesus is everywhere. He is omnipresent. Jesus is in heaven, but he's also here in Nacogdoches. Uh, the Bible says, Jesus says, uh, just before he ascended into heaven to the disciples, I will be with you always, everywhere you go. And so in one sense, Jesus is everywhere, but in a definite sense, because it's repeated over and over and over, Jesus is seated. But there's three occasions, and, and you may find some more, but I looked pretty hard this week. I found three occasions in the New Testament where it is said that Jesus stands. And I think there must be some significance to that. One of those is right here when, when Stephen was going through this persecution, when Stephen was having his life taken from him, Jesus stood. Uh, there's another occasion that if I have time, I'm going to point you to right at the end of the message. And then there's a third occasion that I'm not going to tell you about. I'm going to see if you can find it on your own. Now it'll just drive some of you nuts. The rest of the service, that's all you'll be doing is flipping through your Bibles, but that never hurt anybody. Uh, why, is it, why is it that Jesus stood? Why did he stand? Well, uh, when we stand, that could mean a few different things. Sometimes when we stand, it means welcome. If a guest comes to your home, and you're sitting on the couch or you're sitting in the recliner, what do you do when a guest comes into your home? You stand up. If you are waiting for somebody at a restaurant to meet you for lunch and, and you got there first and you're seated and they come into the restaurant and, and are led to the table, what do you do? You stand up. Sometimes when we stand, it simply means welcome. And perhaps the reason that Jesus stood is he was saying to Stephen, welcome to heaven. You're going through a time that is unbelievably difficult. People are standing against you. They are stoning you to death. But I'm here to say, welcome to your eternal life. And that's 
very well what Jesus might have meant. Some, sometimes when we stand, it's, uh, it's so that we can cheer people on. If you go to a ball game and your favorite team is at a critical moment and you're hoping they're going to do something to win the game, what do you do? You stand up and you cheer for them. Perhaps Jesus stood to say to Stephen at his most difficult hour, I am pulling for you, Stephen. I'm on your side. You've been faithful. Continue to be faithful. I'm pulling for you. And that's perhaps why why Jesus stood. Or sometimes we stand to say, well done. You ever gone to a concert and somebody's uh, they've played an instrument or, or, or there's been a song and it's been very impressive. And what do you do at the end of that? You stand up and you clap for them. You give them a standing ovation. And by doing that, by, by rising to your feet, you're saying, well done. Perhaps Jesus was communicating that message to Stephen. And in Stephen's difficult moment, he was saying, Stephen, you have done the right thing. Well done in your bold stand for me. And maybe it means all three of those things. You know, my desire for life, and I'm sure yours is the same, is that in my difficult times, that somehow, for some reason, Jesus would stand. That at the end of my life, that Jesus would stand. I want to so honor the Lord with my life that perhaps Jesus would stand like he stood for Stephen. I want our church to so honor God that perhaps Jesus would stand for us like he stood for Stephen. So what was it in Stephen's life that was so unusual? As I said, you don't see this repeated over and over in scripture. Uh, Even the fact that God gave Stephen a a view into heaven, a window into heaven, that's that's unusual. And, And then that Jesus stands, how unusual is that? What was it about Stephen that caused Jesus to stand? What was so unusual about him? Well, that's where I want us to focus. Three things, I think, that were unusual about Stephen. Uh, Number one, Stephen had a servant's heart. If you look back to chapter six, I told you that the story of Stephen begins in chapter six and ends in chapter seven, but the first seven verses of chapter six introduce the story of Stephen and tell us something about his heart, and they underline the fact that Stephen was a servant. Let me, let me read those verses. It says, in those days as the disciples were increasing in number, those, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And so in the early church, there was a division. There were complaints. There was a problem. And one group of senior ladies Uh, were not being treated the same as another group of senior ladies, and it had caused some division. Verse 2, the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So it says the 12 summoned, that's referring to the disciples, to the ones who were preaching, to the ones who had really given their life to full-time Christian service, the leaders of the church. Uh, Not exactly the same as ministers today, but there's some connection here if we want to see this as a little bit of an analogy. So these, these 12, these leaders called together the whole company of the disciples, that means the whole church called together, and they said, 
we can't solve this problem because we need to be focused on our assignment. And our assignment is the preaching of God's word. And he's going to emphasize that again in a, in a subsequent verse. Look at verse three, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom can appoint, whom we can appoint to this duty. And so many believe that this is the first deacons. So there were ministers that had been set apart with an assigned task. And then there were another group of people that we call deacons today. That word's used a little later in the, in the scripture. Uh, the word deacons, a Greek word, just means servants. But these are servants that have been especially set apart for a task. And the minister said, the disciples said, let's choose seven servants or deacons uh, to handle this task. Verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now that's interesting because that tells ministers, it tells a pastor, it tells me what my primary job task is. I'm to be about the ministry of prayer. That means I should be praying for you. I should be praying for you by name. I should be uh, praying that the character of Christ will be formed in you and that you will know the peace of God and that you will be serving God, that God will be glorified in your life. I should spend a significant amount of my time just praying for you. That's my job. And then the other assignment I have here is to preach the word, is to study, to be prepared, to stand and preach to the very best of my ability the word of God. Now, ministers are given two more tasks Later in the New Testament, Ephesians, they're given the task of uh, equipping the saints for ministry. Uh, they're also in the epistles given the task of overseeing, oversight of the church. But the primary two tasks are these right here in this, in this passage. Now, we also see that deacons have an assignment here, right? So this communicates that a pastor ought to be first committed to the ministries of prayer and the word. What are deacons to do? Well, deacons are to... Make sure that there's no division in the church. And how do they do that? Well, they do it by serving, serving people, serving people in their spiritual and material needs. They, they make dissensions go away. That's what happened here through their service. Uh, we also see here that deacons are to serve. They are to serve uh, the members of the church, especially those who can't serve themselves. It's speaking specifically here of widows. Uh, in their spiritual and material needs. And uh, the deacons are to make sure that the ministers can be committed to their assigned task of uh, prayer and, and the ministry of the word. And, and I commend our deacons here. They are excellent at all three of those assigned tasks. Now, we continue on. Verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole company so that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So it, quick description a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, that it names the other six. We're not focused on those this morning. Look at verse six. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. That means they were set apart. They were identified as here a group of people with a certain assignment and, and their servants. And then verse seven is interesting. So the word of God spread and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The church grew. What is the key for a church to grow? What does a church have to do to grow? Well, he tells us right here. Uh, there, there needs to be people committed to serving 
the spiritual and material needs of the members, especially those who can't serve themselves. And there needs to be ministers who are committed to prayer in the ministry of the word. And when they got all of that worked out in the first six verses, the result in verse seven is the church, the church grew. Now, looking at that, here's what I'm impressed with, with respect to Stephen. Stephen was a servant. Stephen just rolled up his sleeves and found a way to serve. A way that some people might have thought was insignificant, waiting on tables, he probably prepared food, he probably bust the tables, he probably took the trash out to the dumpster. He was a servant and because he served, God was able to bless the church. Now we need to be, listen church, as Christians, we just need to serve. Sometimes we make this way more complicated than it needs to be, but we need to follow the example of Stephen and just find a place of service and serve. There are all kinds of things around us, people around us that need serving, people you know that are struggling, that need help physically, spiritually, materially. There are needs at the church. Every Christian ought to be a servant. I think one of the reasons why Jesus stood in honor of Stephen is because he saw in Stephen a heart of service. Now, I said sometimes we make this more complicated uh, than we should, and I want you to listen closely to this and not hear something different than what I'm saying. Uh, But let me tell you how we often complicate this. We are so focused on finding the perfect place of service Pastor, I've got to find a place that fits in with my personality and I've got to find a place that fits in with my spiritual gifts and my proclivities and my proficiencies and my preferences. And when I find the perfect place of service, then I'll serve. But you notice that's not at all what Stephen did. In fact, you don't find that anywhere in the book of Acts. Nobody ever did that. You don't find that anywhere in the book of Ephesians. Nobody, or, or the epistles, or, or nobody does that. Stephen simply looked for a place, saw a need, and served. In fact, if you read the rest of Acts chapter 6, uh, what you're going to see is that Stephen was gifted in some different areas. Stephen was an academic. He was a theologian. He could debate other academics and just hold them spellbound. And you see that just the the next few verses in Acts chapter 6. He was a gifted communicator. The longest sermon outside uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Stephen's sermon. The longest sermon recorded in the New Testament, I should say. Stephen was a very gifted communicator. So, so, when Stephen served the tables... He was serving probably outside of his giftedness. In fact, when they were searching for men to serve the tables, it simply says they were looking for spiritual men. They didn't look for men that fit a certain mold. They just said, let's find seven spiritual men because we've got a problem and we need somebody to serve. Now notice this. It's important that we can find a place that best fits our Uh, our our uh, proficiencies. God has given us spiritual gifts and if we can serve with those spiritual gifts, we will be happier, we will be better at what we do, people will be more blessed because we did it. But we can't let those things become obstacles. We can't let those things, listen, 
become excuses to keep us from serving. Now, eventually, Stephen gets to the place when you get into chapter 6 and 7 where he is serving with his spiritual gifts and he's serving effectively. And we want you to do the same. We've got a class starting in the fall that Mark and Meredith are leading. Mark, our associate pastor of ministries, and we're going to give you a spiritual gift inventory and we're going to help you figure out those things and help you find the best place to serve. And that's going to be an important step in helping people get plugged in. But the attitude needs to be this. I'll do anything. Stephen didn't say, well, I'm not going to wait tables. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a scholar. I'm a theologian. I ought to be out here debating the, the heretics. I, I, don't, I don't need to be serving tables. No, Stephen said, if there's a need, I'll serve. We need to have that attitude. Let's find the best place to serve, certainly, but, but we just need to start serving. If you don't serve, you're, you're missing out on the fullness of God. Holy Spirit working in your life, we must serve. That's the first thing I think that uh, we can be impressed with, with Stephen, and perhaps one of the reasons why Christ stood. Now, the second thing is that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to have to cover this very quickly, but we we would be wrong to skip it. In verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5, it says, that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And if you go to chapter 7, verse 55, we read that a moment ago, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. What in the world does it mean for somebody to be full of the Holy Spirit? Now, the Holy Spirit is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We serve one God in three persons, and one of those persons is the Holy Spirit. I know that's difficult to understand, but the Holy Spirit is God, and somehow, in some way, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? Well, the Bible talks about how we're connected to the Holy Spirit in a lot of different ways. The Bible talks about being baptized in the Spirit. The Bible talks about the gifts of the Spirit. The Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And the Bible talks about being filled in the Spirit. And all of those describe the different ways that we're connected with the Holy Spirit of God. To be baptized by the Spirit means that we're indwelt with the Spirit. When a person trusts Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, the Bible says that God baptizes him in the Holy Spirit. That's different from the baptism. Baptistry waters. This is when God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell forever that believer. If you're a child of God today, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And when he entered you, that's called the baptism of the Spirit. Now, when the Bible speaks of the gifts of the Spirit, those are certain enablements, special enablements that the Spirit has given to you. And there are about a dozen or more that are listed in the New Testament. But it's something that you're particularly good at because God has made you good at it through the, through the empowerment and the enablement of the Spirit. And then there's the fruit of the Spirit. That's simply the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in your life. That you will have love and joy and peace and patience and goodness. There are nine of the fruits of the Spirit. That, Those are indicators that the Holy Spirit is in you. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you'll be able to see. How can you see the Holy Spirit? You have love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You know, we use that that word filled in a lot of different ways. But you can see in our usage of it exactly what it means here. 
If somebody says that they are filled with anger, what does that mean? It means they are being controlled by their anger. You ever been filled with anger where anger had just taken control of you? That's the usage here. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We're to give the Holy Spirit control in our lives. Now, we can't spend two hours on this this morning, and, and, and rest assured, we will not. Uh, but let me show you one key verse in the New Testament that helps us to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Show us Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Very good. Uh, it says, uh, and, and that's part of the verse. Let me read all of the verse. It says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. You see it there but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it describes the, the meaning of being filled with the Spirit by contrasting it with being drunk with wine. So let's, let's talk about being drunk. Uh, what does it mean to be drunk? Well, uh, to have so much alcohol that the alcohol is now in control of you. It's in control of the things you say and the things you do and how you drive and your attitudes and your actions. To, to be drunk means the alcohol is control, is in control. It also means to be drunk that you lose much of your fear and inhibition. So drunk people tip, typically are pretty courageous, right? Not usually to their advantage, but they have courage, liquid courage, they say. It lowers fear and inhibitions. Third, to be drunk uh, means that the alcohol becomes the primary influencer of your emotions. Some people, when they're drunk, are happy. Some people, when they are drunk, are sad, but the alcohol controls their emotions. So, understanding that, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It says, don't be drunk with wine, don't be filled with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Well, it's very similar. It means that the Spirit is in control. It means that the Spirit, you're surrendering to the Spirit. What should I say, Holy Spirit, in this situation? What should I do? What should be my attitude? You're allowing the Holy Spirit to be in charge. It means that you have heightened trust in the Lord such that your inhibitions and your fears are lowered. You have courage. You have boldness when you are filled with the Spirit. And it means that the primary influencer of your emotions is the Holy Spirit. That you don't take your emotional cues from the world, but you take the cues uh, from the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the greatest privileges we have as Christians who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit is that we can communicate to the Holy Spirit and we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can say things like this, Holy Spirit, what has the Lord revealed in scripture that I should do right now? See, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, when you're a Christian, you can say when you've got to make a decision, Holy Spirit, how is the Lord revealed in his word that I should respond to this? And you can allow the Holy Spirit to direct you. You can say, remind me of the source of strength for obedience. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, when you have the Holy Spirit within you and you face temptation, you can say, Holy Spirit, remind me how, how Jesus can be my strength for obedience. You can say, increase my faith in the Lord such that my fear is diminished. You can say, Holy Spirit, remind me that 
God the Father is in control, and I can have all boldness and courage. You can say, bring to my mind the words and the principles of Scripture that I can say to somebody when I'm sharing. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we can surrender to the Spirit, and the Spirit can control us, can give us boldness, and can change our attitudes. Now, I'm going to have to go through this quickly, but I want you to see how this showed up in Stephen's life. There's six ways. I'm going to go through this very quickly, but this is amazing. If you look at chapter six, verse 10, Stephen is in this debate with these academics that are standing against him. And it says in verse 10, but they were unable to stand against him. But it wasn't that Stephen was so impressive. Notice they were unable to stand against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. You see, when you're filled with the spirit, you can speak powerfully and convincingly in an argument. Now, look at verse 15. This is amazing. It says, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, what does that mean? I don't think it meant that his face glowed. I know some commentators say that, uh, but that's never... That's not, there's no cross-reference to that in scripture that's, uh, that, that refers to the face of an angel. I just think this means that he had the, in, in the midst of this argument, and, and it was a heated argument, right? At the end of this argument, they picked up rocks and killed him. I mean, you and I have been in arguments, but nobody has ever been stoned to death at the end of one of my arguments. So I've never been in this heated of an argument. But in the midst of this argument, he sat there with a face like an angel, just as calm. How could he do that? Well, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was giving him calmness. He was getting his emotional cues from the Spirit. The Spirit was saying, listen, Stephen, God's in control. Don't panic about these knuckleheads. God's in control. Trust God. He had the face of an angel. Uh, in, in, verses, in chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, he confronts the experts very boldly. He says some very harsh things to them, but true things. And he had courage that's amazing. He says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Uh, he's, he's, he's talking very boldly. How was he able to do that? The Holy Spirit. Verse 59, uh, he had peace in, in the midst of torture. It says, while they were stoning Stephen, he was able to calm out, Lord, call out, Lord, receive my spirit. Uh, how could you do that? Well, the Holy Spirit. He was, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 50, uh, verse 60, I think I should have put, uh, he, he asked, yeah, verse 60, he cried out, Lord, forgive these people. Throwing rocks at me, forgive those people. Uh, how was he able to do that? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So people ask, how are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And I, I don't have much time, but I, I want to give you a prayer that I pray often. And I'm going to give it to you in long form. I, honestly, I can't remember this whole long prayer, but I have my little abbreviated version of it. But let me show you a prayer. How, do you, how are you filled with the Holy Spirit? The Bible gives some instructions back in Ephesians 5, 19 and 20 and 21. It, basically, you have to focus on the gospel. When you focus, this isn't something you just, you know, just muster up in you uh, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You focus on the gospel, on the good news of Jesus. And the more you focus on the gospel, the more the Holy Spirit will be in control in your life. So when I'm facing a tough decision or when I'm in a heated argument or when I am tempted to sin, 
Here's the prayer that I pray. Let me show it to you just a few, uh, few words at a time. Lord, I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I remind myself that. Lord, I, I, I'm not who I used to be. I'm a new person because I'm in Jesus. I'm in Jesus only because of his merit, only because of his sacrifice, and only because of his righteousness. I'm not in Jesus because I've been perfect. I'm in Jesus because Jesus has been perfect. I'm a new person. So I have to remind myself, because when I get in one of those heated situations, I'm thinking about the old Noel, and the old Noel didn't have the faculties to deal with those kind of things, but the new Noel does, because I'm new in Jesus. And then here's how I sum that up. There is nothing I can do to make you love me less, and there is nothing I could do to make you love me more, because it is by the merit of Jesus' life that you love me. And I just, I just ponder that. There's nothing I can do right now to make God love me more. And there's nothing I have done to make God love me less because God loves me because of what Jesus has done, not me. So because of that never changing love, I can trust you. And so I surrender my will to you. I'll do it your way. I can trust you because you love me. I surrender my fear to you because I can trust you. You are all I need for everlasting joy. So I surrender my emotions to you and I surrender my desires to you. May your spirit be in full control of me and use my life for your glory. And when I focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I am a new person because of what Jesus has done and he loves me and I can trust him. Listen, I, I am filled with the spirit. I, 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 that, that's how I surrender to the spirit. And I have, I have boldness and I have strength and I have confidence that's not in me, but comes from the spirit of God. Why did, why did Jesus stand for Stephen? What's unusual about Stephen's life? Well, when you read this and you see all these evidences, Stephen was a man filled with the spirit. Now, very quickly, let me share with you number three, Stephen surrendered himself. There are a lot of ways you could describe Stephen's life. You could say he failed because he preached one sermon and instead of voting him in, they stoned him to death. I mean, that's not a very good way to start at a church. Uh, you could say he failed uh, because he was discredited, wrongly accused of blasphemy, shunned, and his life was taken from him. You could say he failed because he never got to experience the popularity of success or the earthly blessings of God. Or you could say that he succeeded because through his faithfulness, the gospel spread from, from Jerusalem to Asia Minor, from Asia Minor up to Europe, from Europe it spread to America, and then it spread to Nacogdoches. And it spreaded, spreaded, uh, it's bad at grammar, but it did to me and to you and around the world. And let me show you how. Let me show you one more verse here. Verse 58, we read it a moment ago, but we, we, we didn't slow down. It says in verse 58 of chapter seven, they dragged him out of the city and he began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Do you know who that is? Saul, his name in most of the Bible is Paul. Saul was a man who was, uh, against Christ and Christianity. In fact, his job was to hunt down Christians and to have them arrested and some of them executed. And, and he stood against the church. But God began to do something in his life at this day. He stood there and he watched this. And he watched Stephen cry out 
and ask God the Father to forgive the people who were stoning him. He saw the boldness and the confidence and the peace on Stephen's face. And God began to do something in Saul's life that he never got over. And Saul ends up, some years later, coming to know the Lord, becomes the greatest missionary the church has ever known. He's the one who took the gospel to Asia Minor. He's the one who took the gospel to Europe. He took the gospel to Spain. Europe was evangelized. America was evangelized. Nacogdoches was evangelized. I mean, it all comes from Paul. And then from Paul, you step back one step. It comes from Stephen. And Stephen's blood that went into the ground became the seed of Paul's faith that changed the world. And see, Saul was not touched by Stephen being rescued. That's not what made a difference in Paul's life. Paul, Saul, was touched by watching Stephen put Jesus first and giving it all to Christ. You know, sometimes we... You know, we think we've got to succeed and we've got to have a perfect marriage and we've, everything's got to be great so that we can have an impact. But notice that sometimes our greatest impact is by just surrendering self and making God the most important thing. You know, when the history of the world is written from heaven, it may be that the hinge point of all of our faith will be not the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, or even the bold travels of Paul. But the hinge point of our faith may be that when Stephen decided it's not about me, it's about the Lord. And I'm gonna make sure whatever happens, however many rocks hit my head, no matter how painful, I'm gonna make sure God is glorified in this. And because of that, look what has happened. Some people, I know I'm thinking of some stories and I try not to think of stories when I'm preaching, but some of you are at a crisis point and it's terrible. What should you think? What should you do? Here's what should you should do. Surrender self. Because perhaps in you staying faithful through the hardship, that will be a hinge point for many people honoring God the rest of their lives. Hey, I, I am out of time, but I, I've got to tell you one other place where Jesus stands. Uh, do you want to know? It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when the Bible says that Jesus stands and knocks on the doors of the hearts of Christians who need to respond to him. This morning, you've heard what it took in the life of Stephen for Jesus to stand. Now, Jesus is challenging us to have those same attitudes in our lives. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. Father, in, in the knocking on our hearts that Jesus stands to do right now, I pray that we will respond in a way that honors you. Father, we want to be people like Stephen uh, because you deserve it, because we want our lives to honor you. We want our lives to be a hinge point so that people will come to know you. May that be true of us as well. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.